It is Wednesday, February the 15th, 2023. Welcome everyone to episode 76 of Tone the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. It is pitching discussions each and every week with the five-time World Series champ, David Cohn, the research ace, James Smythe, and myself, Justin Shackle. Producer Dan Rourke here as well. And here we go. Players report for spring training this week. We're going to have games happening and Roughly 10 to 12 days, World Baseball Classics coming up. Uh, Coney's Kansas City Chiefs are Super Bowl champions yet again. It is a pretty good time right now. How's everyone doing this week? We're doing great. Great Super Bowl. Loved, loved it. Loved everything about it. Obvious reason, reasons. Um, watching the proud father, certainly. I mean, anybody who's in baseball has sort of a connection to Patrick Mahomes and his father, who was a major league pitcher, obviously. So just watching the pride on... Papa Mahomes' face after that game really, really meant a lot to me, just knowing everything he's been through and what a great father he is. It was a wildly entertaining game, and as a Giants fan, it was always nice to see the Eagles lose in a big spot, so all good here. Yeah, and for something for their fans to, I guess, uh, perpetually complain about, even though on the holding call, uh, their own players saying it was the right call, wish they missed that, but yet yet again, here we go. Uh, The Chiefs coming away with another Super Bowl title. So what is that for Mahomes in his time in the league? Has he, has he done, he's got two obviously, but has he done any worse than advancing to the AFC title game? Five years as a starter, five trips to the AFC title game, three Super Bowls and two wins. Mm, Not too bad. Enjoy David. Unbelievable start to his career already, potentially a hall of famer. And he, you know, he's uh, just think up five or six years in. So that, that that is an amazing start to his career among the best ever in any sport. All right. We have a busy show this week. We are going to examine a pair of pitchers who received like polar opposite extensions that that kind of leads to some questions there. We're going to look at additional new rules that are going to be put in play that were reported on. Uh, on earlier this week and we're going to have some Yankees talk near the end but first the opener and I have to tell you there's been like a growing trend on tone in the slab recently where like we're putting out an episode and then on release day some pretty notable news happens that pushes our you know our podcast I don't want to say it it makes our podcast irrelevant or obsolete or anything like that but we have to kind of like wait six seven full days to talk about that subject matter for our next episode. Not the case today, because about 10 minutes before we started recording, James Smythe texted us the Pakoda projections for 2023 that were just released. So, David, we're going to start this show with the opener. We're going to talk about these Pakoda projections. Right off the bat, guys, what jumps out to you? Well, there's not, I don't think there's really any big surprises on this. And, uh, you know, you know, James Spite was all over this and got it, got it to us in time. And our 76th episode, congratulations, guys, by the way, 76 of these we've done already. That, that's pretty remarkable. That, that number kind of hit me a little bit this morning. But, uh, you know, Yankees at the top, a little under 100 wins on Pakoda, which is notoriously a little more conservative in terms of their projections. So they projected the Yankees and their, in particular, their pitching, their run prevention game, bullpen, starting rotation, very strong, m- among the strongest in the game. That, that's pretty pretty exciting if you're a Yankee fan. Dodgers still on top in the West in terms of projections, almost a little over 97 wins projected. So uh, it's interesting to me how the new schedule is going to factor into this. 
you know, when you're doing projections, trying to, you know, uh, trying to base last base your projections on a series of numbers from the last couple of years, but last year in particular, the schedule was a big deal. I think this year and, and the balance schedule in particular, I think the, uh, the Eastern divisions in both leagues are going to benefit and the central divisions are going to take it, take it in the head a little bit this year because they can't beat up on each other in the central divisions anymore. You've got to play everybody equally. So that is a, a caveat. I think it's hard to project because we're going to be in the first year of the new balance schedule. As Coney mentioned, 99 wins for the Yankees. That is the highest total uh, on the projections here. Uh, some other notable teams. You have the, the Dodgers and Mets, 97 Astros, 96. Um, the, Fewest runs in the major leagues for the season projected for the Yankees uh, by Pakoda, the one of the main projection systems in baseball uh, run by Baseball Prospectus. They do a great job. Um, checking this out, you know, the, the AL East, I think it's going to be tighter than the actual spread there here that they have about, you know, nine games, Toronto in that 89-90 uh, spot in second place, Tampa 86, Boston 81, Baltimore 74. I think. It'll be a little bit tighter than that. But the way these projections work, this is a baseline. Obviously, guys are going to get hurt. Players are going to get traded. Older players are going to decline. Younger players are going to come out of nowhere from the minors and break out. This is a, a baseline expectation, and they're not trying to reinvent the wheel. The Yankees and Astros and Dodgers and Mets are going to be good. The Rockies and Reds are going to be bad. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out, but this is a great way to kind of get the lay of the land as we start spring training. Just for context, the Yankees were projected last year by Pakoda to win 99 games. And they, they nailed that right on the button. They, they won 99 games uh, in, in real time. So here we have a 99.3 couple of observations that I, I jotted down by kind of glancing over this again, this is just, just released within like the 20 minutes of us recording here, Boston, Baltimore. Those are like two teams where I can see them both, uh, winning less than 80 games and potentially winning as close to 90 games. So they're, they're the bottom two in the projections with the AL East. I thought Seattle with just 83 wins was, was a little bit low right off the bat, only a plus uh, 19 run differential. I think all three of us are pretty high uh, on their, on their pitching staff and they made some pretty nice additions to their lineup as well. Teoscar Hernandez, that trade. Hello. Uh, NL Central, Milwaukee, just edging out the Cardinals, which I feel like are as as good of a uh, depth team in the Central Division as any. And that that's the Cardinals for me. But they have Milwaukee at 87.6, St. Louis at 87 and a half. And then you have the Dodgers, again, 97.4. James mentioned, like, you – they're not overthinking it, obviously. These are baseline projections, but I think 97.4 may be pretty high for the Dodgers. Um, I think it's going to be, if, if they reach 97 wins this season, um, I think it could potentially be with all the questions they have. They have the most questions that a Dodgers team has had in a healthy amount of time here. I think if they go over 97 wins obviously that's saying something but if they reach 97 wins to me uh that's going to be a pretty good job for for Dave Roberts and company in Los Angeles but yeah they like they they really ranked the Yankees pretty high and they think a lot of the Yankees pitching staff here they they have them with the fewest amount of runs allowed across major league baseball in 2023 and that's going to tie into our Yankees talk a little bit 
uh, later on in the show. So we'll see what you guys think of a certain subject matter with the New York Yankees. But as we move on here, guys, we are recording on Valentine's Day. That's when Pakoda released these projections. I want to start off our our items, uh, our our list of items here with uh, just a, a, a fun activity here. I want to know, in the spirit of Valentine's Day, if you could give me the pitch in Major League Baseball that you have the biggest, juiciest crush on. Well, you know, I, 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 you know, when you sent out the rundown and asked this question, Shaq, you know, it sent me, sent me uh, looking, you know, and then doing studying a lot of video and there's so many great cases out there. So many great pitchers that feature just some filthy stuff nowadays. I mean, velocity movement, everything's tracked. They have pitch design technologies helping these guys along. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to see year over year the changes that guys make in the offseason because they come uh, to spring training. There's, there's, you got to watch. You got to really keep track because somebody's going to jump, jump out at you. But an oldie but a goodie for me. And 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 I went round and round with this. But Clayton Kershaw's Cooperstown curveball to me still is a beautiful thing to watch. You can you can really see it if you're in the stands. If you're watching it, you can really hear the oohs and ahs when he he drops one of those beautiful curveballs in for a strike or a swing and a miss. So visually, it's just beautiful. I think on average, about a little over 60 inches of vertical break on it, 67 inches up to 60, almost 70 inches of drop, and only five inches of horizontal break on it. So it's a true you know, 12 to six, as they say on the clock type curveball, the Cooperstown curveball from Clayton Kershaw would be my pick. I love that. Yeah. I think, I think Clayton Kershaw's curveball is like the Elizabeth Taylor of, of pitches, timeless classic, um, obviously going to be synonymous with some of his big hall of fame moments, but yeah, that, you know, we, we may think of like a crush as something that may like fly under the radar here, but yeah, sometimes you have to go with the obvious and, and Kershaw's curveball is uh is like lifetime achievement status yeah there you go yeah you can maybe one day like his hall of fame plaque will off to the side there'll just be a rolling gif of of that curveball dropping (laughs) in over and over and over um now this might change depending on the day that you ask me because there's so many great pitches out there great pitchers and just you know do you do you prefer a big sweeper do you prefer big country hardball big fastball just up and in uh today i will go with devin williams airbender it's got movement it makes batters look silly it's got a cool name it's got everything you want in a pitch very effective i like it yeah especially the high spin rate on this change up right when generally speaking when you talk about pitchers throwing change-ups or off-speed pitches splitters and change-ups the idea is to take spin off the pitch and make a drop to give the ball more time to move and kind of take some velocity and some spin off of it hey he's got a high spin kind of a change-up probably the highest spin on that type of moving pitch since fernando valenzuela and we called fernando valenzuela's pitch a, a screwball devin williams is almost screwball like in his movement and the high spin rate that he gets on it very nice, very nice pick, James. Um, I I was initially going to go with Kodai Senga and his ghost fork ball because for like crushes, there's all, sometimes like a sense of mystery. Like, hey, what's what could this be like? You know, am, am I am I really going to be as infatuated uh, with my crush when when I get to know it? But uh, 
I went with something that I know was something that I know is my type at the moment. And that is, uh, that is a lot of horizontal movement. So like, like many, I am a sucker for the horizontal break lately. Uh, Andres Munoz, you could go slider or fastball here. I went with his heater. Uh, when you watch Munoz in person, it is really simple to see why he's just like a different breed of reliever. His run on both his pitches, the fastball, the slider, remarkable. But I'm going with fastball here. Velocity, horizontal break, awesome combination. It's going to get me every time. I'm going with the fastball for Andres Munoz. Good pick. Yeah, yeah we either one, right? Here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some other sure. honorable mentions. I uh, I was thinking about Sandy Alcantara's changeup, Aaron Nola's knuckle curve, Shohei Otani's splitter, Edwin Diaz's slider, the list could go on and on. There's a lot of great pitchers and a lot of great pitches in the game today. Speaking of one pitcher who has a lot of pitches in his arsenal and probably a big reason why he is so good at finishing off opponents with strikeouts, that's you, Darvish. He and Christian Javier, they were recipients of extensions from their respective teams over the last week. So Javier with the Astros, uh, five years for $64 million, and you Darvish, six years, $108 million. couple of nuggets here. Darvish's deal is going to be taking him through his age 42 season. I'm wondering if you could pick one pitcher, 35 and under at the moment, to be above average. So I guess what, an ERA plus above 100? To reach that mark and be above average in his 40s, who would you take? You know, it's a little bit of a trick question because you have to look at the workload early in their career. So I'll give you an example. I have three pitchers on my list here and doing the research. Um, and the one that might surprise you is probably going to be my pick. But right out of the gate, you've got Aaron Nola, a guy we mentioned earlier. He's 29 years old. He's already got 203 career games started. He's almost approaching 30 war. Actually has the foundation for a Hall of Fame style of career at just 29 years old. He's going to turn 30 in June uh, eight years, got a little bit of mileage on him early though, because many showed up in the book in the big leagues, he's kind of been a horse, uh, and you know, already 203 starts. So is he going to make it to his forties because he had such a heavy workload in his early twenties? Another example would be Corbin Burns, similar age, 28 years old, but he only has 78 career starts. He was a reliever for the first couple of years. He's only had two full years as a starter. He's got 10.4 war almost a third of the amount of war that Aaron Nola has. So he might have a better chance because of his workload kind of being uh, limited in his early 20s. But the guy I'm picking right now is a guy, Miles Mikolas from, from uh, St. Louis. He's 34 years old. He had three years in Japan. The 62 game started in Japan, just 20 per year. So the workload was manageable. He's only had 115 games started in the big leagues. Coming off a pretty decent year last year. I like his repertoire, his curveball, the way his pitchability, as they say. So at 34 years old, low mileage, got a chance to, you know, only six years away from 40. His pitchability might allow him to be the choice right now because, he's, you know, the qualifier was 35 years and under. He's 34. So of all the guys that are approaching 35 years old, he might be the guy. The... Your mind first goes to those crafty pitchability types it, when when this question is first posed, right? Because you're thinking like grit and guile. How can how can these guys eat their way through at 40 years old? There is a case to be made for 
one of the you know more overpowering guys who's still young and you say well even if they lose a couple of ticks off their fastball they can still get by with medium velocity uh you mentioned one guy that was on my list Aaron Nola the my pick though and I know he's been flirting with retirement year year after year Clayton Kershaw you mentioned the curveball uh, in the earlier segment but he turns 35 next month so I so I get in under the wire here there's a he hasn't been pitching as much in volume but the quality is still there there's been a little bit of a, a I guess a narrative building around that he's really in decline uh, and that's true in that he's not going 200, 180 innings anymore. But his ERA, 2.83 over the last five seasons, 2.28 last year. His ERA plus over the last five seasons is 146, which is pretty much in line with his Hall of Fame inner circle great kind of track, even if it is only 120, 130 innings a year. So it doesn't matter that he's, you know, maybe physically not as strong as he was in his prime but he is still an elite level pitcher inning to inning pitch for pitch so he's someone i wouldn't mind handing the ball to with uh with that slider with that breaking stuff you just hand him the ball and i'll i'll take my chances workload very good point you know workload is the key to that question yeah i'm I'm kind of with with workload in mind i'm kind of going the opposite way because uh for me like garrett cole racking up the innings for sure um right now just under 1700 innings in his career uh 32 years of age at the moment um i just think that that stuff speaks for itself over the long haul so you may not reach you know the workhorse type of uh load that he is accumulating right now in his late thirties and to early forties. But I think, you know, as a, as a guy who could pitch, you know, 120, 130, 140 innings in the back end of his career, I still think the stuff is going to be quality. I think he's on a hall of fame trajectory as well right now. So I'm I'm going to put my faith into Garrett Cole being that above average pitcher uh, in his uh, age 40 season at the moment right now, again, 32 uh, years of age and in the midst of a point in his career, where again, he's outside of, of 2021 and the shortened 2020 season. I mean, he's had 200 inning seasons. Let me see, one, two, three, four. He's got five of them. And I don't think that changes this year. I think he's an excellent candidate to project to have uh, at least 200 innings thrown this year. But I just think the overall talent, overall quality of pitches, I think that runs him uh, into his 40s. So uh, we'll see. Fun little activity to discuss there. But with Christian Javier and his five-year $64 million extension. We saw what he was able to do in 2022, racked up a lot of strikeouts in not too many uh, innings either. And he was at the forefront kickstarting a pair of no hitters. Obviously the one in the world series is top of mind. Also did it against the Yankees at some point in 2022, but I'm wondering this, the bigger picture with the Houston Astros, because they just hired a general manager in Dana Brown who was working for the Atlanta Braves. We know how the Braves operate here. Does Javier's extension suggest that we could see the Astros copy the Braves' model of signing their young core players to team-friendly extensions? I don't see why not. You know, there's been talk of maybe Framber Valdez in the midst of negotiations as well, currently as we speak, so... It's going to be an interesting follow. You've got Javier under contract now. I think the real follow there is their young shortstop. 
you know, if they could get him locked up, then you're really starting to follow that that blueprint that Atlanta has put forward and has has done so well. So, you know, the the the, the thing with early signings is that they're you know, life changing money is different for a kid who grows up in extreme poverty in somewhere in one of the Latin American countries, as opposed to a kid who grows up on the West Coast and went went to, went to a, a four year university and maybe grew up in you know. It, it, maybe in in middle class or upper middle class uh, range in terms of his background. So it's completely different culturally. It really does have an, an, an impact. Life-changing money can really be different and more enticing for some of the young Latin kids. And, you know, no, no it's not a one size fits all kind of a situation. You know, every, everybody's going to have to make their own individual decisions, but certainly uh, culturally uh, th- there is an impact there for some of the young Latin American kids. Like Coney said, I don't see why not. The Astros have good young players, just like the Braves did. And it makes sense in the long haul that the teams will come out ahead in the most part when you do these kinds of deals. This is something that John Hart um, pioneered a bit with uh, Cleveland in the 90s when you had the Jim Tomies and Manny Ramirez and guys like that, the young core for the perennial division winner and playoff team that they had in Cleveland in the 90s. Now you see the Braves doing it with all their great young players. So if you have uh, guys in Houston like a Framber Valdez, a Jeremy Pena, Kyle Tucker, why not? If the players are amenable to it, take a shot. Yeah, I think obviously it's a a strategy that's worth taking. I think to go with what David was saying, like Kyle Tucker may be one of the more difficult players for them to lock up long term I kind of equate that to what the Braves are able to do with with Austin Riley like they paid more in that extension noticeably more than some of their other core players so it'll be intriguing to see what happens with the Valdez with the Pena but also how Kyle Tucker factors into this and Dana Brown was on record mentioning Kyle Tucker specifically that they'd like to get a long-term extension done with him before they uh, go to arbitration yeah, he's such an all-around ball player. Defense, base running, he does everything well. So that's the type of guy you would want to kind of wrap your arms around and try to keep around. All right, gentlemen, we have some new rules coming into effect in 2023. We've talked about them in the past, but on Monday, it was reported that Major League Baseball's Joint Competition Committee voted unanimously on position players only being allowed to pitch in extra innings or I'm going to run through it here or in the ninth inning for a leading team that is up by 10 or more runs or any time for a trailing team that is down by eight or more. Now, this wasn't officially put into play, but it looks like it's going to happen ahead of the season opener. How noticeable do you think this change will be when it's put into effect? Because we saw a lot of position players on the mound in 2022, but under these adjusted guidelines, how noticeable do you think it'll be? Well, the one that jumps out is, is the team with the lead. You know, that's something we never really thought about in the past. That, that's a really a, a new phenomenon where, Hey, we've got, we got a 10 run lead or a 12 run lead. Let's save our bullpen that way. And that, that we just never, ever saw that. So the rules are going to address that part of it too. Specifically uh, we've always seen position players come in to blow out games on the losing side of it. So yeah, I, I get it. I mean, it, it's some of the, some of the funniest or m- most fun moments we had last year were, 
were with position players pitching, whether it was Albert Pujols or, or uh, you know, some somebody like that. Uh, you know, you know, Molina, Molina and Pujols both in San, in, in St. Louis. It's the entertainment business. You know, the fans liked it. You know, when you're in a blowout game and you get to see something that you didn't expect to see at the end of the game, it's it's not all that bad. I know a lot of the purists, the baseball purists, hate it and have really talked down about it, but it's the entertainment business. Sometimes you can't take yourself too seriously. A, a great memory as a young Yankee fan was Wade Boggs coming in during a blowout loss in Anaheim, and he's hucking in knuckleballs. Uh, I love Halloween and candy, but you can't eat it every meal of the day. I think the position players pitching got a little too much, and we did even start to see it a lot in wins. Coney mentioned that. And uh, Hanser Alberto with the Dodgers, he was like the blowout closer. He closed out eight wins for L.A. last year. That's going to be a higher bar now with a 10-run lead. The old rule, by the way, was a six-run game. A six-run lead, you can bring in a position player to pitch for either side. Now, as Shaq mentioned, it's eight runs if you're losing, 10 runs uh, if you're winning in the ninth. So I think we are going to see it uh, happen less often, which I think is a, is a little bit of a good thing just to walk it back a little bit. So position players pitching in a game. In 2010, it happened nine times. In 2015, it was 27. In 2021, it was up to 89. And then last season, 132, excluding Shohei Otani. 132 of these mop-up position player appearances. That's about five times a week around the major leagues. And he was getting a, a little too much. So I think it'll still happen. Teams are going to, to, teams like not having to burn their bullpen. They make a choice to go with this, you know, one inning, empty the bullpen for nine innings and, and all that. They make a choice. I think they should have to live with it. If, if you run out of pitchers, that's your problem. So I think it's good that it's going to happen less often. It's not going to be eliminated by any means, but it'll happen a little less often than it did last year. Yeah. I wonder how far a drop from that 132 number from last year we see with these, with these new stipulations. Um, David, you mentioned the purists. I know they're not happy with the next topic that I'm bringing up here. And uh, that's the rule that, uh, does relate to um, the advanced runner. And there is a ton of discussion and debate about the advanced runner in extra innings becoming permanent, and it is going to become permanent moving forward. Personally, I wouldn't have minded seeing the rule of whatever you want to call it, ghost runner, man for man, I just go advanced runner. If, if this rule, it started like in the 12th inning of extra inning games, but here we are, it's a permanent fixture in Major League Baseball. Every extra inning frame We'll begin with a runner on second. Thoughts on this becoming a permanent fixture in the game? Well, it was really driven from within. I think if you talk to every manager or general manager, certainly in in the in, on the management side of things, they they love the rule and they really push to keep it. Uh, at first, I, I, I'm on board. You guys have heard me. At first, I was not a fan of the rule from from the get go. I was not a fan of the rule, even though we accepted it. We kind of took it because as sort of a COVID relief rule uh, where teams were compromised and pitching is such a commodity nowadays. So I'll defer. I'll say, you know what? I, it has grown on me a bit. Um, you know, the manufactured sort of drama at the end of games, I, you know, I, I get it. Uh, games are too long anyway, although the pitch clock clock will help I'm, the, as far as that goes this year. But yeah, I mean, the, the play, the players, I'm not sure where they, they, they fall on it. 
generally speaking. I think it's been a little bit of a mixed bag. But I guess if you had a democracy and you had a vote on this thing, we know the management side would be overwhelmingly in favor if you voted for this. The players would probably be majority, too, at this point. Uh, so, yeah, I, I defer. You know, I didn't like it at first. Still not in love with it. But you know what? If if this is the way that the, the insiders want to go, then, then, you know, you have to give it a chance. I don't like it at all. I didn't at the jump, but in 2020, it was like, all right, let's just get through the season and, and make it work. Oh, we're bringing it back in 21. Oh, but just for this season, we're bringing it back in 22. Oh, just for this season. It was just a matter of time before they made it permanent. And now it is. So we all got to live with it. What I don't like is that it warps the game so much right out of the gate in the 10th inning. Uh, Rob Maines from Baseball Prospectus, Joe Sheehan, they've they've done good work on this. The general run scoring environment in baseball right now is about four runs per nine innings. That's okay. Teams score about that much. In in the with the Manfred man in the extra innings, we're up around 10 runs per nine innings. We we have vaulted the game into such a, a different scoring environment where teams you score two, three, four runs, and then it's not the lead is not safe in the bottom of the inning. It's too much too soon. And the issue I have with it is what was the problem in 2019 before this rule came into place? What problem were we combating? It's not like hockey where 20 to 25% of the games go to overtime and MLB. It's about one out of every 14 games or so goes into extra innings at all. That's once every two weeks. Now out of the games that go into the 10th inning, about half of those end in the 10th. Those that go to the 11th, about half go you know, end in that inning. And then half of those end in the next inning. So when you really look at it, we're talking about once every couple of weeks, you get an extra inning game. Maybe once a month, you have a game go 11. Those really um, difficult, you know, the, the games that the teams and the players don't like, those 13 inning games and beyond, those only happen two or three times a season per team. So in order to to avoid those rare things, we're going to do something that affects a larger share of games, you know, eight, 9% of games with extra innings. I maybe I could squint and see it. If you introduce it in a later inning, maybe you just play it straight for the 10th and 11th and bring it in, in the 12th or start with a runner at first in the 12th and then move that guy to second base, come the 13th or whatever you want to do there. I just think it's, it's too seismic a change going from the ninth inning to the 10th. Yeah. When the first, uh, you know, at first when this came out of the gate, I was actually for it. I, I think I was in the minority right out of the gate. I liked it. And then watching it over the course of the season play out, I thought just the immediacy of it all, like you said, right after the ninth inning, way too soon. I think if teams and players, they're for it, then I understand that. And I see why they are. I'm on board for it. But yeah, like you mentioned, James, I, I could see it. And I'd probably be more comfortable with it happening like in the 12th inning to start play innings 10 and 11, like you did the first nine and maybe incorporate something like that uh, in the 12th. But it's something we're living with at the moment, right after the ninth inning, 10th inning, you will have a runner on base uh, moving forward. Uh, we talked about the Pakota projections earlier in this episode. They have the Tampa Bay Rays. So they bring it up here. On my laptop, they have the Tampa Bay Rays at 85.8 victories here in 2023. But the Rays have, have a couple of obstacles to get over that most teams don't during spring training. Tampa Bay has to split its camp between two temporary sites because of the hurricane that hit 
the western portion of Florida back in the fall. So they're going to have the start of their spring training at ESPN's Wide World of Sports. Then they're going to move to the Trop on March the 1st. They also have 12 players and 10 staff members participating in the World Baseball Classic. So you throw that on top of teams getting acclimated to the new rules. There's a lot there for Tampa Bay to kind of dig itself out of at the very start of the season and spring training. If this has an effect on the race to begin 2023, which area of the team do you think will be impacted the most? Well, I, you know, the, the first couple of weeks are pitchers and catchers and some batting practice. So when they're at one, you know, when they're up at Disney, then, you know, okay, that's just to be outside, get in shape, get, get your, get, get sort of the, you know, the rust off. Uh, the big challenge, I think once they move to the trap, it'll be better for them. But still, the big challenge is being close enough to the minor leagues. All the all the maneuvering throughout the course of spring training, calling up some AAA guys on a day-in and day-out basis, there's a schedule that's put out. And it's easier, like for the Yankees, just to reach across the, across the uh, Dale Mabry Highway and grab some minor league guys and get them right over here in a van pronto. Uh, that's going to be difficult for the Rays to do. I, I don't even know how their minor leagues are going to be laid out, what, what, how they've done it in the past, how they're going to adjust in the future. But that's going to be probably the biggest problem from a management standpoint, trying to get, you know, everybody covered with all those players on the WBC. Where are our minor leagues at? How do we get these guys over here on a day in and day out basis? I think that's, that's the problem for them just from a mechanical standpoint, spring training, the rest of it, you know, remains to be seen, but they are still will be in their home ballpark. It's not like they're, they're out in Vegas somewhere and they're, you know, they're miles away from where they're going to play their home games. And at least they'll be in the trap. That's not a bad place to be. At least you're in your home ballpark. You have one other caveat of all this, and I don't know how much this matters, David, you could probably speak to it better than most, but it was always something that I thought about uh, with, with Rob Thompson, the Phillies manager, who was long time, uh, you know, spring training coordinator for the Yankees, Matt Quattraro, who is now the Royals manager, he did pretty much all of the spring scheduling for the Tampa Bay Rays. So there, there's a big adjustment with a lot of their new coaches. And I'm, I'm, I'm also thinking like as they move to the trop, that's probably better for their pitching staff. It's actually an advantage. They're going to be able to work off the mounds that they're going to be working on during the regular season. So it's, it's a bit of give and take, take like organizationally and for the staff, it might be a bigger challenge than the actual players, especially once they, once they get back to the trap, something to watch out for though. Cause they, uh, if, if you think about it, they haven't had a normal spring now going on what three, four years. So. Yeah, very true. Yeah. And uh, the razor, are my pick to finish second in the AL East. So it'll be interesting to see how they uh, they perform out of the gate. All right, some some Yankee news as we begin our Yankees discussion this week. Nestor Cortez Jr. had to pull out of the World Baseball Classic. Feel really bad for him because you could tell how much that meant to him. He was adamant about pitching in the WBC since near the end of last season. You saw his, uh, his, his new glove that he's going to be working for Team USA in the WBC. It's like got a stars and stripes pattern. It looked really cool. He flashed out on MLB Network a couple of, of weeks ago. He's not going to be pitching in the World Baseball Classic after suffering a grade two hamstring strain. We saw what Pakota projected for this Yankees pitching staff, the fewest runs allowed in the majors in 2023. There is a lot of hype with the Yankees starting five, but now 
after Frankie Montas, and you have Nestor Cortez, who said he's going to try and be ready for the start of the season. Really no rush there, but all things considered, between Cortez and Montas, is this kind of a reminder that we should hold our breath a little on the high expectations for the Yankees' rotation in 2023? Well, It is a little bit of a cause concern out of the gates, but what it's going to test is the Yankees' depth. You know, they're, they're five through 10 starters, really the next, the next front line, you know, and who that's going to be, whether it's Domingo Herman or Clark Schmidt's going to get opportunities, probably the top two next in line guys, but I'm already looking beyond that now. You know, it, you've already got two starters that are potentially down, even if it's just for the start of the season, that's going to create opportunities for everybody else to move up the line in the pecking order. And some of the young Yankee pitching, it's going to really get tested. And as we've said before on this podcast, the Yankees' uh, reserves in that regard, their their reserve, their minor league starting pitching has been depleted, in, in particular for the Frankie Montas trade or in other deals they made. Uh, you know, obviously uh, Scott Efros trade to to the Cubs, so that you know they, they lost three at least three potential starting pitching reserves in trades last year. So next in line moves on up the ladder. It's going to be tested early. Now a lot of the injury data over the years has suggested that it's for a given team, it's more likely than not that you might have two starting pitchers on the injured list at a given time at the same time, which as Coney says, that just tests your depth. I've said this a lot uh, as far as starting depth goes last year, the Yankees had 11 starting pitchers last year. MLB average was 13 guys. Teams are dipping into that five to 10 and beyond range a lot. And the Yankees got 29 starts last year out of pitchers who were outside their top five in starts. That's basically an entire rotation's worth of guys. Now we'll see how serious this Cortez injury is. We're still a month and a half away from opening day. Nestor Cortez's first real start, even before the injury was probably going to be sometime in April. So we got a a long ways to go there. If this only pushes his clock back two weeks, then it's probably no big deal. But it only goes to show you can't just pencil in the same five guys for 32 starts and say, bing, 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 this is our rotation. You just look by looking at the schedule, I don't think the Yankees need a fifth starter per se until April the 13th. But to piggyback what you were saying, James, what was a big reason why the Yankees got off to such a white hot start in 2022? It was the durability of the rotation. I don't know at what point during, like, I don't know what game number it was, but there there was that stat that went multiple months into the year where the Yankees had the same starting five make their turns on schedule for such a large chunk of the first half of the season. Like JP Sears made maybe two starts in between there, but they had the same starting five post and their day in the rotation. And they're not going to have that right out of the gate. So I'm not saying this is a, a massive red flag, but to David's point, the depth isn't what it was at this time last year. So Maybe pump the brakes just a little bit, see where we're at, because right at the start of the season, you already aren't where you were uh, in maybe mid-June, early July, compared to last year with the durability of that Yankee starting five. Yeah, the, the concerning part with Nestor Cortez is that it's a grade two strain, and it's coming off of last year when he had some hamstring issues that were a little less obvious. 
even though uh, he kind of walked off a of one start or had some issues with his hamstring last year. So I'm wondering if it's the same hamstring, is this, is this going to become a problem? And, and really on the scale of uh, one to five or one to four, grade two, that's like two weeks, two, three weeks, you do nothing. So your throwing program gets shelved. Pitchers and catchers are reporting this week. He's going to be behind the eight ball. He may, he may be a month late like Frankie Montas as well. Hard to say at this point, but a little bit concerning that this might be a recurring injury for Nestor Cortez and that it's a great two. Now, he's not somebody that the Yankees were going to be leaning on and expecting to throw 200 innings to begin with. So even if his clock is pushed back a little bit, that could be maybe a good thing. If, if he th- pitches his first game on April 15th instead of April 2nd, that's, you know, couple extra starts that he can make towards the end of the year the other big thing that i that we can you know don't push the panic button yet garrett cole carlos rodan the reason why the expectations are so high and a lot of these projection systems not just pakoda but fangraphs and all these the reason why the yankees pitching staff is so highly thought of is they have a great bullpen and high-end starting pitching at the top with depth at in the middle and bottom so rodan and cole gives you that much of a leg up over the rest of baseball, save for maybe a, a, the team across town with, with Scherzer and Verlander. But Colin Rodon is about as good a one-two as you can put together in baseball. All right, on a much lighter note here, Sunday before the Super Bowl, I'm sure David was settling in, getting ready for the Chiefs. And uh, on the Fox pregame, they actually had Alex Rodriguez come on the screen. And it was all part of Fox Sports introducing... Derek Jeter as its newest baseball analyst. So they had some baseball flavor during their Super Bowl coverage. Nice to see. But uh, yeah, Derek Jeter is joining the Fox Sports family for baseball coverage. I'm wondering here, on a scale of 1 to 10, David, where would you rate the chances of you and Derek Jeter broadcasting a game together on Yes in 2023? Wow, I would love that. I know Yankee fans would love that as well. Uh, I, you know, that's a hard one to handicap. You know, I, if I were Derek, I would consider it. You know, th- this is the you know he, this kind of his coming back out party, doing the doing the pregame, or he's probably going to do more studio work with Fox. Maybe they throw him in some games in the booth too to do some actual game coverage. But if he could do some Yankee games, even though it was just ten or twenty or so, just to kind of, you know get his name back out there, build his brand again. Not that he needs it, but uh, I highly recommend it for him. I would encourage him to do it. So what am I going to, I'm going to handicap it as probably a three, a three out of 10 that this happens. Uh, It's a long shot. It it is. And and Derek's a a tough negotiator in terms of contracts. And he always has been, but nonetheless, this, this is more about a contract or a number. This is about Derek Jeter's legacy with the Yankees and what he could do. It's almost like a gift. He'd come into the S booth as a gift and to kind of, you know, reintroduce himself to the, to the next generation of Yankee fans. I don't have a clue. So I'll just go with uh, a fitting number for Jeter too, just because he wore number two. I, I'm surprised that he's even doing broadcasting at all. Uh, in the middle of last season, uh, Jeter uh, was a guest on the K Rod cast, Sunday Night Baseball, with uh, Michael K and Alex Rodriguez. And I, I work on those shows too. And I was right there with Jeter and our fearless leader at yes, John J. Filippelli. And they threw the, the possibility out there. Would you uh, do broadcasting? Would you 
enter a big league booth uh, down the line. And at the time, Jeter said, no shot. So to have him do at least some broadcasting, even if it is just studio work at Fox with A-Rod and the gang uh, there, that's a little bit of a surprise to me already. I'm with you. I was very surprised when I saw that he was was joining Fox and just venturing into the world of broadcasting. But now he's open Pandora's box, so to speak. So it, the question being raised, I thought w- was appropriate. And you know what? You rated a two. David rates it a three. Those are low. But my reaction is, hmm, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> so stay tuned. We'll see what happens with uh, with Derek Jeter in the broadcasting world here in in 2023 all right guys that's gonna wrap it up here for this week thank you all for listening out there and again please subscribe to our youtube channel that way you do not miss a beat with what we are streaming each and every week for david for james for our producer dan work this is justin we will talk to you next week on toe in the slab pitching with david Cohn, a production of john boy media